gearing our hearts for receiving the word. Hope that was a blessing. I trust as well that you're well rested. You have the additional hour to sleep. The downside of that is your stomach's growling already because we think it's lunch already. So there is a, a downside to that, but uh, you'll you'll adjust quickly. You know, past couple weeks I've been reminded about what it means to get old. Yes, turning 50 is one hand. You know, turn, that's a milestone, turning 50. My youngest is turning 16 today. So I've got my last one 16 years old. I'm 50 on that end. I was thinking, you know, the only thing left is that senior discount coffee at McDonald's. <laughs> but you know, as, you, as you, the beauty about growing older is that you tend to narrow your focus. See, when you start out in life, you start out like this. Everything's out there, and you're told, you know, the world's before you. You can study what you want to study. You can be what you want to be. Marry who you, well, who you hope to marry. And you're out there with all, all these possibilities. But as life, as life gets, as you get older, what happens? So you're narrow. You start narrowing that focus. But the beauty of that is at the end is what? Christ. And as you get older, there's, there's fewer distractions fewer options, fewer thoughts about what I'm going to do in 30 years. And you're left with what's essential. And actually, as I look at the text today that we're looking at and that question about what it means to be a man after God's own heart, even this morning as I'm praying coming here, it says, you know, boy, I wish somehow God chose to use human instruments to, to teach and to preach. I thought, Lord, I wish, I wish I could get out of the way and just the word can be seen. Because man is just a, a fragile instrument. But yet, here we are. And this morning, what I want to do is walk through the text, examine that question, and perhaps if the only thing that we're left with is that one question in your heart, asking yourself, Lord, am I a man after God's own heart? Because when everything else, when all the dust settles, that's what's going to matter. We read already this morning in Acts 13 where Paul is on his first missionary journey and he's teaching in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia and he's going through the, the history of Israel. And in doing so, he talks about Saul being the king and then being removed. Now, you could, you could turn to 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to get there in just a moment. We're going to look at Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel chapter 15 as well this morning. But I'll, I'll get there in just a moment. So as Paul goes through the history of Israel, he makes this one statement. And we're going to see this. And what I thought I found interesting is walking through Scripture. I want us to be able to contrast, really, every time he's talking about David being a man to God's own heart, he says it in contrast to the man who wasn't and the man he replaced, which is, of course, King Saul. So he comes to verse 22, and he says this, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. I mean, what believer reads these words? I mean, how, how many of you have read these words, and how can you not stop and pause right there? How can you just not push the pause button when you hear those words and ask yourself that question? It just beckons that question in my own heart. Lord, I mean, would you say that of me? Would that be true of me? I mean, there's just something so, so powerful about that statement. I mean, how is it even possible 
to know God's heart. I mean, how is it even possible? What does it mean? How can anyone claim to know the heart of God in the first place? And if I were to ask you, tell me what you know about David. You'd go through and then systematically, I, I, I tried this out just to, to kind of see how it works. Systematically, what people will talk about, well, maybe they'll remember that he killed a bear, he killed a lion, protecting the sheep. Of course, maybe if you just heard this in Sunday school, the child's going to talk about Goliath. Some people will remember his friendship with Jonathan, maybe his conflict with Saul. But then inevitably, someone's going to talk about his sin. Well, then there's Bathsheba. There's the lies, the deceit, the pride. He tried to number the people. And then when he found out that she was with child, there's murder. But inevitably, when you talk about David, someone's going to say at some point, yes, but he's a man after God's own heart. And after 40 years of him reigning as king, many battles, many victories, many sins, he was nevertheless described as a man after God's own heart. I want to get back to the context a little bit here to understand the significance of the statement. And all began in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when Israel requested a king. So just jump back with me here. In the... In the um, I don't usually work with PowerPoints too much, but it allows you to see the verses because we're going to jump around in these two chapters. Well, we're going to stay in 1 Samuel, but it will allow you to see some of the references and, and jot those down, perhaps read them a little bit later on. I'm going to do a lot of comparison with some of these references here. But the context begins with Israel requesting a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 21, he says, The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Now, remember what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to Saul. Because the storyline is going to be here. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel is going to request a king. Then we're going to go to 1 Samuel 13, where we have the first time where he says about Saul that God's going to begin seeking a man after his own heart. Then we're going to see the confirmation of that in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And then we leap all the way over to Acts 13, where he makes that statement, and we're going to bridge that, that gap. We're going to see why he made that statement in Acts 13. But it begins here. So here's our context. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no. 1 Samuel 8, verse 19 through 21. No, we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 22 says, so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice. And make them a king. In other words, what he's saying here, he says, heed their voice. In other words, don't heed my voice at this point. He said, go ahead and give them what they're asking for. Heed their voice. Give them what they're requesting. And we're going to see that because later on we're going to see the contrast with David. And David's going to be the exact opposite because now David said, I'm going to choose a man after my own heart. But right now he's given Israel what they're requesting. I make four observations just from this passage. First of all, the choice of a king sinned from disobedience. They said they, they refused to obey Samuel. Samuel was the voice of the Lord. They have refused to obey and listen to Samuel. So the first thing I see is that they chose a king, and their choice of a king stemmed from their own disobedience. So it should come as no surprise to them that they received a king that disobeyed. The choice of an earthly king was a rejection of a heavenly king. He said, we want a king that's going to judge us. We don't want the heavenly king to judge us. We want an earthly king to judge us. 
So it shouldn't come as no surprise to them that Saul is going to make his own righteous decisions outside of God's desires and God's intentions and God's will. The choice of a king was a sign of where their heart was at. He said that we may also be like the other nations. Their desire was not to be like Christ, to be godly, to be godlike. They wanted to be like other nations. So it should come as no surprise to them that the king they received also did not have a heart for God and to be and to follow after his will. Finally, the choice of a king was granted and the people got what they wanted. In Acts 13, verse 21, the passage we just read previously, says, The men of Israel asked for a king, so God gave them Saul. People were not unfamiliar with being a king. You know, kings go back 3,000 years. The first kingdom of Nimrod, 3,000 years prior. So Israel had been familiar with what it meant to have a king. And they now desired to emulate that and inspired that. Which is why we go to the next chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. What does it say? Samuel, in looking for a king, what does he say? We say we have the description about Saul. He says about Saul, he says he had a choice, and a handsome son whose name was Saul, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. He's not making a compliment here. What he's saying is, this is what the people wanted. This is what they were looking for. And this is what I'm going to give them. You could contrast this a little bit later in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, where he says about David the exact opposite. He says, no. The Lord says, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. For the Lord does not see a man as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance But the Lord looks at what? Looks at the heart. So in Saul, they gave them the man they requested. They gave him the king they requested. He said, but he's going to be the exact opposite of what I'm going to have with David. Because with David, I'm not going to look at his outward appearance, his outward stature, what the world thinks of him, and how impressed everyone else is. And I'm going to look for a man after my own heart. So in Saul, God gave the people what they requested. In David, they gave, God gave them what they needed. Let me just tell you, we are, we're always better off when God gives us what we need. If you were to compare these two men, what's kind of unique, one thing that makes unique comparing Saul and David is that they lived, they had many things in common. They ruled over the same people. They ruled over the same time period. They had the, they had the same resources. They had the same covenant. They had the same promises. They had the same hope. They had all these things in common, and yet one was unsuccessful. And David was a man after God's own heart. And so to the question, why was David such a man? Again, I, I asked that question to a few people to see the responses. Most people, if you ask them, why was David a man after God's own heart? And you're going to find rightful answers. People are going to say, well, because he, because he was repentant. Because he confessed. Because he loved the word. Because he was humble. Because he trusted God, because he was a man of faith. And all these things in and of themselves are true. But let me go back to Acts 13:22. What did he say? The second half of that verse says, I found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Who will do all my will? Actually, he doesn't sit there and say, I'm going to choose a man of my own heart who's a good man, who's a kind man, who's a courageous man, who loves me. He's going to say, a man who does my will. And what an exclamation point here. 
Well, we know about David, and there are many great things about David, and you could, you could Google pretty quickly, a man after God's own heart, you go rent some books that talk about David, and they'll go through every chapter. Well, he was a courageous man, he was a humble man, and those things are true. But one point, that the, all I want to point out here is in Acts 13, he only wants to bring to light one fact, that he was an obedient man. And a man after God's own heart is first and foremost a man that's going to be obedient to the word. That's exactly what Saul was not going to be. We notice here we're not talking about perfect obedience, but we're talking about complete obedience. And there's a difference. He, was, he, he specifies here that he was what? He was willing to do all the will of God. It wasn't like he was selective in doing so, but he was complete in doing so. So I want to look at this morning is five evidences why Saul was not a man for God's own heart. And take those five things in, in chapter 13 and chapter 15, five evidences that Saul was not a man for God's own heart. And in doing so, be challenged in my own heart of what I need to be and what I want to be. So in first, first Samuel 8, we saw that there was a demand for a king. Chapter 9, they choose the king. Then he's anointed in chapter 10. Chapter 12, we have his coronation. And here are the final words of Samuel at the coronation. Samuel's final words, chapter 12, verse 24, he says this. He says, only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all of your heart. For consider what great things he had done for you. Oh, how quickly Saul is going to forget that admonition that was given to him by Samuel. The first test will be found in chapter 13. In chapter 13, he's going to face the Philistine army, and we're going to find out that he's got a fearful heart. As Israel prepares for battle, and I'm going to assume that we're somewhat familiar with chapter 13, chapter 15. We're going to give some background information here, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through and read all these verses, but I've got all these references up here for you. So in chapter 13, what do we have? We have Saul facing the Philistine army, and it was a formidable foe. Chapter 13, verse 5, says there were 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, as many as the sand which were on the seashore. So, humanly speaking, there were reasons why Israel could have been and perhaps even should have been fearful. As you walk through this, you see that, you know, Saul, in chapter 13, verse 4, had just attacked a Philistine garrison. Basically, the people had known that, and doing that, what did he do? Basically, he like kicked the hornet's nest. He got them aggravated. He got them angry. Israel knows now, in verse, you read in chapter 13, 4 through 6, Israel knows that they're an abomination to the Philistines. They saw that they were in danger. They were distressed. How sad to see verse 6. It says they ran and hid in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, pits. Notice it says the men ran. It wasn't the women running. The men were running and hiding. They were afraid. And what is, what is Saul's response? He had been given the admonition to do a fear, first and foremost, fear the Lord in truth and with all of your heart. And yet he's got a fearful heart and he trembles. Chapter 13, verse 11, it says he sees that the people are scattered from him. He sees them running scared. 
He sees this massive army before him. If you go to chapter 15 as well, verse 24, he also says the same thing then. He says, I've sinned. I was, I was afraid. I feared the people. I obeyed their voice. Saul was a, had a fearful heart. I tell you, you know, when you, when you look, his response to this is what? When he's, his, his fearful heart will lead him to disobey. His fearful heart will keep him from doing what God's called him to do and be obedient to his word. Can you think of a time in your own life where fear kept you from being obedient? Fear of what others might think of you? Fear of whatever danger, the danger here was, was real? And yet they responded out of fear. And that's his excuse to Samuel for why he disobeyed. He trembled. We see as well in the same context here that he has what? He has an impatient heart. An impatient heart. The danger was real. The threat was real. But God wanted him to do what? To wait. If you go back to chapter 10, verse 8, he's given the instruction to go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you're going to wait. Now, why make him wait seven days? I mean, you're, you're, you're faced with this army. Your people are scattered. You're scared to death. You're like, please come now. He's anxious. He's got a fearful heart. His, his heart is not anchored in truth, anchored in the promises, but he gets afraid. And now he gets impatient. We see his impatient heart pushes him and causes him to be disobedient. This time of waiting should have not been used to grow anxious, but to grow hopeful. What they should have been doing during the seven-day wait was to be waiting. Waiting always gives the connotation of waiting with expectation. It's not waiting and suffering in your waiting. It's not waiting and, and trembling. It's waiting with expectation of God's deliverance that is ahead. What they should have been saying is, I wonder how God's going to defeat this army. You remember Shangar? He slew 600 Philistines just with a wooden spike. I mean, who of you remember Samson? He slew, with the jawbone of a donkey, slew 1,000 Philistines. So here they are gathered here again, but God will deliver us. And instead of using that moment of waiting, intentional waiting, he wanted him to make sure he waited seven days. Now, from a human point of view, I could understand that he was impatient. But his impatience led him to be disobedient. And he had an impatient heart and let his heart be settled in the promises of God. And let his heart be settled in the word of God. He became unsettled. And as in his unsettledness, he acted out in disobedience. In chapter 13, verse 13, he says this. He says, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly and you have not kept the commandment. Of the Lord your God. He's not, he, you know, Samuel doesn't spend time saying, you, you know, you should have, you should have not been, God's going to take care of you. He says simply this, you were impatient, you should have waited, and you should have been obedient. Now, I think obedience is something that's underrated today. The necessity, the imperative, the command to be obedient. And yes, he was fearful. Yes, he was becoming impatient. 
Samuel simply says, you acted foolishly. And here in verse 14, chapter 13, you have the, the first pivotal moment in Saul's life where he says, verse 14, he says, now your kingdom shall not continue. Why is this? Because the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In verse 14, he talks about the Lord seeking a man for himself, a man that's going to be a man after his own heart. He tells him his reign will not continue because he did not obey, because he did not follow. And from this point on, he says what? I'm going to seek for a man for a man for myself that will be a man after my own heart. Which is why later in Acts 13, what does it say? He says, I have found this man, and this man is David. We see two things here in regards to this. In chapter 13, we see this, what I call foolish disobedience in chapter 13. In chapter 15, he'll call it rebellious and wicked disobedience. As if Saul is going to, Saul is digressing. He has this foolish disobedience in chapter 13, but then chapter 15, he says, it's wickedness and rebellion and willful disobedience. We see in Saul an unsubmissive heart. An unsubmissive heart. As we go to chapter 15, we go to chapter 15, we see Saul clearly not willing to submit to the Word of God. Now, you could maybe say that in chapter 13, he was young. His heart was not well anchored in truth. He was fearful, so he disobeyed. He was impatient, so he disobeyed. But in chapter 15, we have a different kind of heart that is revealed. And the first aspect of that is an unsubmissive heart. Saul chose to not submit to the Word of God. He knew what the command was, he knew it was from God. And we're going to read the verse in, chapter, in verses 2 and 3, chapter 15, verse 2 and 3. He gives a commandment here. Let's just read this now. He says, now, chapter 15, verse 3, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, there's the commandment that was given to him. And yet what we're going to see is an unsubmissiveness on the part of Saul where he's going to refuse. He's going to decide which part of the commandment he's, he's going to choose to obey, which one he's not. My friends, this, the Word of God is complete. We're reminded this morning that it is, it is holy. It is the revealed Word of God. The only appropriate response to the Word is a submissive heart. In a world of absolute relativism, in a world where people have a hard time saying there's an absolute truth, you and I have to be convinced that the Word of God is that truth. And I can't go in like Saul and decide to have an unsubmissive heart and pick and choose what I think is appropriate to follow and which one is not. The Word of God stands alone. We don't need science to prove it. 
We don't need archaeology to validate it. We don't need reason to explain it. I certainly don't need experience to confirm it. I have the word. And I'm called, my heart is called to submit to this word in complete obedience. How dangerous it is for us to go down the slope that Saul went down and to choose for myself which portions of Scripture I'm going to obey. So he gives this commandment in chapter 15, verse 2 and 3. This commandment did not come as a surprise to Saul. If you go back through the history, we'll find some 350 years prior, remember the battle where, where Moses was holding his hands up? Aaron and Ur were on the east side of the holding his arms, and whenever he, his arms were held up, they were victorious over the Amalekites. And when his arms fell, they were losing and being defeated, and Joshua was conducting the battle. They were victorious that day. But in Exodus 17, he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalekite for generation to generation. So, so Saul is very familiar with the condemnation and the judgment upon these people. Deuteronomy 25. I'll read this passage a little bit longer, but I need to read it. It says, Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. He says, Remember what Amalekite did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at the rear. In other words, the Amalekites were taking advantage of when Israel was going through, coming out of Egypt. They took the slow pokes in the back that were weak, that were frail, that were sickly, that couldn't keep up, and they were attacking them. He says, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Talk about the Amalekites here. Therefore, he says, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalekite from under heaven, and you shall not forget. So Saul was very familiar already with the judgment upon these people. He wasn't like a, a shocker here that God's calling upon them, because he said, when you have a time of rest, I'm going to have you finish the judgment upon these people. I felt at this point, even when we read these verses, we need a couple of reminders about what he was asking and what he was requesting of Saul here. Putting this commandment back in context. One, we're all guilty outside the grace of God. Chapter 15 Verse 18, when Samuel talks about it later, what does it say about these people? He says, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy what? The sinners. Not the innocent children, the guilty parents. We're all but guilty outside the grace of God. They were not innocent. God's view, God views man as he is, either under the curse of sin or justified by grace. There's not this middle ground where we're thinking about it. And these people were sinners. God must exercise His judgment. His holiness demands it. The word judge means to, to separate, to make a distinction. The judgment of God is separative in nature. It's meant to separate. It defines right and wrong, good and bad. Wood, hay, and stubble, saved and lost, sinful and righteous. I believe the primary emphasis here in him judging these people, one, is the need to separate from these people. First of all, they didn't repent. They had 350 years since their condemnation. 
Secondly, they did not leave. If you look in chapter 15, verse 7, it says what? It says, he saw attack the Amalekites from where? From Havilah all the way to Shur, which is what? East of Egypt. In other words, he chased them and annihilated them all the way to the boundaries of the promised land. To chase them from the promised land. The promised land goes from where? From the Nile to Euphrates. So those are the extent. So he pursued and annihilated them. And then he talks about animals being destroyed. Some will argue, well, maybe because the animals were offered as sacrifices. I don't really think personally that's the intent here. I think the intent is found in chapter 15, verse 19. Because in 19 he says, When you did not obey the voice of the Lord, why did you what? Swoop down on the spoil. The reason why that every living thing was not to be kept is because this was judgment upon people and people were not to profit from that judgment. I believe that was the intent of this passage. So that Israel doesn't benefit from their judgment and condemnation. We see an unsubmissive heart and Saul choosing not to follow through on this judgment and commandment of the Lord. Then we see as well an unwilling heart. So now we're not talking about, remember the, the, the foolishness in chapter 13? Now in verse 9 it says what? Chapter 15, verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep. Look a bit later, it says, and all that was good and they were what? Unwilling. They were unwilling. They did not have the desire to utterly destroy them. Saul was unwilling to act on the commandment of God because his heart was not in tune with God's heart. He called good. He talks about not destroying. That was what he says. All that was good we kept. Well, God already said it was not good to keep. What God found in David was a man willing and desirous of doing his will because he had a heart for God. In order to develop a heart to do, and desire to do God's will, one must cultivate a heart for God. In other words, why, why do we not have a desire to do? Why are we unwilling to obey? What keeps us from having desire and a passion to obey? Ultimately, it comes back to having a heart for Christ, having a heart for His Word. Having a heart for the Lord. I was reading some excerpts from Jonathan Edwards in his book, The Religious Affections. What's neat about these books, you go on Kindle, they're 99 cents. So there's so many books out there that you could just download in two seconds. I was going through reading some excerpts of this. Beautiful, beautiful rendition of this book. It's all with The Religious Affections. He talks about the genuine, how one's faith can be measured by one's willingness to obey. And Jonathan Edwards spends time showing the direct link between man's unwillingness to obey and man's heart. The affections of the heart are not distinct from the will, but rather the will will mirror our affections. If Saul was unwilling to obey, it's because his heart was not, did not have the affections for the things of the Lord. Now listen, we could have many, we could sit here and talk about many reasons why people are, are, people disobey. People refuse to be obedient to the truth as revealed to them. But ultimately it comes back to an affair of the heart. 
he says this, and I like the way he words it. He says that there is no action of the will without stimulation of the heart. And the further I go in cultivating a passion for God and His Word, the further I go in obedience to His will. The more you develop an affection for the Word of God, the more you'll go, further you'll go in your obedience for Him. But I guarantee you, a difficulty in obedience over here is because somewhere over here your affections are not where they need to be. I took a couple of the quotes from his book. He says, The will is only acting out our affections. The vigorous, lively, and sensible exercises of the will are none other than affections than the affections of the soul. And here is one last quote. He says, That religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in His Word greatly insists upon it that we be good and earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts be vigorously engaged in religion. What is He saying? He says, God doesn't expect us to have this just slightly rise above mediocrity, just slightly above, rise above average. But he says, my, my desire to do God's will is going to be impacted, is going to, be, is going to mirror the affections of my heart. And the truth is, when I have a hard time being obedient to God, and I read in His Word what I'm called to do, and I have a hard time doing it, I have to go back and look where my affections are, because something is amiss in my affections. Last one. He had a divided heart. God demands, God deserves complete surrender. It's, it's, almost, it's almost comical when you read Saul's interaction with Samuel. Samuel is going to confront him. Look at verse 13. So, remember, he's, he was supposed to destroy, he preserved, he kept, he made his own decisions. Basically, he, Saul thought that somehow I could do this for God and I could still do what I want and the two are going to be fine. As if God would be satisfied with incomplete obedience. And as if God is going to be satisfied with a divided heart. So look what he says. Verse 13. Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Kind of like this this comic relief here. Samuel says, Okay, well, what's this noise I'm hearing? Don't I hear the sheep? Don't I hear the lowing of the oxen? Is that what I hear? Oh, 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 uh, we, we kept the best for the Lord. And now we, we have him where? Now we have him at the bargaining table. He's bargaining with Samuel. Verse 20. Look what he says in verse, in, in verse 20. He says, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, of course, except the spoils I kept for myself. Wow. You know, but, you know, the reality is we look at this and I'm amazed at that dialogue, how blind it could be, how deceived it could be. But boy, I tell you what, not, not so often. I'm not so far from that myself. I'm sitting here thinking, well, Lord... 
Well, I fulfilled the mission. Oh, yeah, that area over there? Well, okay, I get it. But, I, I mean, but look, look what I did. Of course, then he, he goes into the second part of this passage, verse 15, where he talks about how it is better to obey than sacrifice. Samuel, his final words, really, his, his admonition here to Saul says, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Remember what he said in verse 1, chapter 15? What did he tell him in verse 1, 15? He says what? Now, therefore, heed what? Heed the voice of the Lord. And then he condemns in verse 22, it's better to heed than the fat of rams that you're offering. Now he describes his disobedience as rebellion, stubbornness, wickedness, and rejecting the word of God. He comes across as if he's proud of himself. Let me ask you, whenever you're, you raise your children, did you consider partial obedience acceptable? I remember somebody saying, delayed obedience is what? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Is partial obedience obedience? Absolutely not. And as a reflection of a divided heart, he wasn't all in. He tried to accommodate what God requested of him and fulfill the mission while yet still preserving what he really wanted in his own heart. Beautiful passages we end with. These verses. Psalm 51. The reason why I went to Saul is because to understand who David was, you have to understand what Saul was not. I want to be a man of God's own heart. Let me just tell you right now, it's about being obedient to God's word. And yes, there's times where I'm going to be fearful Yes, there's times where I'm going to be impatient. Yes, there's times where I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to want to be, my flesh is going to want to be unsubmissive. There's times where my heart is going to be divided. There's times where I'm going to be unwilling. And yet, I need to have an, a commitment to submit and obey the Word of God. And if David was such a man, yes, it's because he cultivated a heart for the Lord. Psalm 51. You did not desire sacrifice. Now, 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 when he's saying this now, you have the context. You understand what he's talking about because he saw this with Saul. So here's what he's saying in Psalm 51. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. We're not at the bargaining table with God, my friend. He deserves our full an undivided attention, undivided heart, undivided commitment. He's a jealous God, and rightfully so, not willing to share our hearts with empty idols. So do you desire to be a man to God's own heart? I believe you do. I believe every believer in his heart will want to pray and say, Lord, I want to be that man after your own heart. Cultivate your affections Cultivate your affections for the Lord. Blessed are they.
who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies. They walk in His ways. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, that I might live and keep your word. Or let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Teach me your statutes, and I might delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word, that I might live and keep your word. Amen. I'm going to close in a word of prayer this morning. I have a invite you to ask yourself that question. Meditate on that question. What is, what, is, what is keeping you from being a man or woman at the God's own heart? What area of obedience or disobedience does God point at you saying, here's an area you've been disobedient. If you want to be a man at your own heart, here's where you need to submit and commit your heart as unto the Lord. Pastor Stephen.